This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome to the Opinion Podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. On this week's panel, we've got columnists Phil Collins and Jenny Russell and chief leader writer Giles Wattel. Here is what we're talking about this week. Hillary Clinton is going to be the next president of the United States. Of course, a lot of people are going to spend a lot of time analysing the Iowa caucus results, but the facts are these. Trump and Cruz are unelectable in a national race. Only one mainstream Republican has a chance of squeezing past them. That is Marco Rubio. He has already torpedoed his image with Latinos by betraying them on immigration reform. Bernie Sanders is a socialist. So Hillary beats Bernie and then beats whoever the Republican Party puts up. Simple as that. Is David Cameron simply the luckiest prime minister ever? Or is there an element of skill in his performance which we rarely credit? He beat the SNP and he crushed the Lib Dems. Now Labour's distracted and divided, and even the Eurosceptic threat is evaporating as they are consumed by vicious internal fights. With no coherent, credible opposition, might Cameron pull off a third political victory against the odds? Politics is a very simple affair, which is made complex by people who don't understand it. Last week, the official election study was published, and the Times published on the same day, a great political profundity. Once you're left of Blair or right of Cameron, I don't trust you, said Michael Caine. And that's it. That is all you need to know about how to win elections in Britain. It's very simple, but to judge from how most pundits got the election wrong, not a lot of people know that. Okay, well, so we'll start with the the latest news, if you like, from uh, what's happened in America. Giles, you used to be a Washington correspondent. You know probably far far more about this than anyone else in the room today. What do you make of the results? I think Phil Collins thinks he always knows more than anyone in the room. (laughs) I didn't realise Let's not fall out right at the beginning. Right at the beginning. (laughs) I haven't said anything yet. But seeing as if you are, let me me start. (laughs) Giles, at least least talk us through what's happened and what you make of the Iowa caucuses. Okay, I have to say I was a mere reporter, not a columnist. So uh, let's let's stick to the facts. Thank you, Giles. <laughs> <laughs> the big winner was actually Marco Rubio. I have to acknowledge that. 23% gave him third place on the Republican side. That's a huge result for him. It makes him the prohibitive front-runner among sane Republicans, okay? So now the establishment hopes that the money that has been divided between him and Chris Christie, Jeb Bush will and, uh, and others will begin to flow to Marco Rubio and he will thereby be able to mount a credible challenge against whichever of Cruz and Trump emerges as the, the big nutso candidate after New Hampshire 
next week. Of course, it could be uh, more of the circular firing squad that has um, made life tough for Marco Rubio so far. But he is a very talented candidate. He is the JFK or the Rubio or the um, Obama of the Republican establishment this time around. And so he got 23%, Trump got 24 Ted Cruz got 28 But the idea is that Rubio basically sucks up all of the non-mad support, is that? Yeah, yeah I mean, let, let, let's acknowledge also that it's still very possible that the Republican nominee will end up being Crump. Crump. Let's just call him Crump. Trump. You know, I mean, uh, the, the air hasn't gone out of that balloon yet. Yeah, it could end up. You still think it could end up being Trump? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's remember the difference between the Iowa caucuses and the, and the rest of the primaries. Trump chose not to do the retail politics that traditionally is required to win in Iowa. He just jetted in a couple of times, and and he still got a respectable second. You could look at that as a big result for Trump. And do you think he's got it in him to put in the legwork that he does need to do in the other uh, primaries? He's certainly taking this run seriously in a way that he didn't take his previous one. Yeah. Uh, I think nobody more surprised than him that he's got the traction he has, but it's real and that's because of the sort of rebellious mood in the electorate that we see plenty of in Europe at the moment as well. Charles, how, how good is Rubio? I, I was over in the States for one of the uh, debates and I, I, I'm conscious I don't really understand American politics because I, I can't stand any of them. I hate the whole big white tooth lapel badge nonsense of the whole thing. You hate Democrats and Republicans I, I or just Republicans? I, American politics has got no lessons for British politics really. and it's, it's of no interest uh, really to anybody here. It matters to the world. Um, it matters on. marginally to the world um, but it's it's not particularly an interesting thing for people to talk about on podcasts in my opinion. <laughs> but, <laughs> but seeing as we've got we haven't to, even got to your bit seeing yet, as we've so. got to, is Rubio really that good? I mean he struck me as incredibly plastic in a world where Everybody's made of plastic, but he, and also, I mean, some of his views are, are just horrendous, aren't they? His view, well, yeah. I mean, look, he's a performer. He's a. Good, I've seen him once on the stump uh, in in Florida a long time ago, at the beginning of a run that he then aborted. He he can think on his feet. He's less plastic than Cruz. He's younger. He's he's very charismatic. At some point, we we've got to talk about gender, and I think a funny thing will happen, which is if if we end up with a Rubio. Clinton face-off, a lot of uh, wavering women will go for Rubio as the son they wish they had or the grandson they wish they had instead of the big swing to Clinton that you might imagine as the prospective first woman president. Charles, I'm a bit amazed that you think the women look at other human beings and see them as their sons or their wives or their husbands or whatever. Why should, why should women look at Rubio as a, as a son rather than a capable person who might run the country? Uh, yeah, fair point. I'm just re- recalling the time when I was in the room with him in, uh, in Tampa. And it's full of people stroking his head saying, yeah. there, there, darling, can I fetch you some tea? You, pretty much. It, really? it, 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 look, it was a blue rinse Republican audience who just loved him. But you don't think Rubio will win, ultimately, do you? No. Let's assume he does get the Republican nomination. You, you mean, you've been quite clear, you think Hillary Clinton will, will beat him there? Yes. I um, <clears throat> look forward to uh, presidential rather than primary debates later this year. And uh, even though Clinton is a flawed and vulnerable and pretty boring candidate, who everyone is, has seen too much of, she will be 
very credible against Rubio in a debate. If 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 that's the matchup, remember remember she's been a a pretty competent Secretary of State for what six years, and she's been in the Senate much much longer than Rubio, and she will try to make him seem callow, and she could easily succeed. What makes you think that that's what matters to the electorate? Are they looking for competence, or are they looking for excitement and somebody who makes them feel that? the world could be different than the unsatisfactory way it is now. Well, the 2000 and 2004 elections make it very clear that they just want someone they can have a beer with on the... on the. Um, well, that's not Hillary Clinton, is it? Uh, that's true. But Rubio, Rubio is... She's got a husband who quite fancies a beer. <laughs> I don't things. think he's the one who's being born. No, you, uh, you, you make a fair point, um, and, and maybe, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I still, I still think that uh, this is Clinton's to lose, and the only reason we're not talking more about her is she's a bit dull. Is there, is there nobody on the Republican slate who you think could beat her? Uh, out of them, Rubio is the one. Rubio is the one uh, mine. They're all a bit nervous in the Hillary camp this morning. They they would have wished uh, that uh, Rubio hadn't done so well. 23 is about 10 points more than uh, many were expecting for him. Doesn't this also tell us that we just cannot trust polling? This result for Rubio, as you say, was about twice as good as anybody but anticipated. Po- polling at caucus is, is notoriously difficult. Sure, isn't it? but because I mean, we've been making, s- to be there in the room. We've been making so many assumptions about where people are, and then they're offended like this. Doesn't it show that this race, despite Phil's scepticism, is a lot more interesting than we think? Oh, I think it is interesting, and um, um, it's more interesting than uh, I think. Phil's, <laughs> Phil's full of bleep as usual. <laughs> we can send him away to read novels until the whole political business is settled over the next them. year. Well, it, it, the risk of boring Phil. Let's move. Let's move on. Sure, it's too late for that. We'll move back to. Well, let's move back to British politics. And Jenny, your oh. your thesis, <laughs> your thesis that David Cameron is the, simply the luckiest prime minister we've ever had. Well, it's a question I want to pose because he has had an amazing run. When we think of where everybody thought Cameron was 18 months ago, and nobody thought he'd win the next election, it looks if he really might. Um, lose Scotland, it looks like the Lib Dems might well remain a real threat, we thought we'd have a Labour government, and then even if Cameron managed to get through all of that and be the head of a coalition, it was expected that the Eurosceptics would tear his party apart and that he would go down in flames. Now, every single one of those predictions has been proved wrong. And the question is, is he just the recipient of amazing good fortune, or is he actually more politically skilled than we allow? And I remember talking to somebody in Downing Street just after the election, and I said, my goodness, you, you were so lucky that Jeremy Corbyn's emerging as this frontrunner. And they said to me, luck? Luck's got nothing to do with it. We positioned ourselves very deliberately over the past few years so that, A, we shoved the Lib Dems off the stage by looking like moderate Tories. Secondly, by seizing the centre ground, we made it impossible for Labour's centre to have anything to say, which is why we've ended up with a left-wing candidate. And I, this is a question that I'd like to ask. We just tend to talk, we in the political and commentating classes generally, though I think I have more admiration for Cameron than many, although I don't share his politics, tend to look upon him as a PR man who's just the recipient of several random events and, and has benefited from them. I think actually perhaps there's more to it than that. So I'd quite like to ask these two what they think. Well, I agree. I, I don't, I've never thought he's just a PR man. I don't think you get to be prime minister. And if you're, as, uh, if you're just that, I think you have to have something substantial. And I think he has. I think both things are true. I think it's true that he has been lucky, but that also he has some substantial achievements to his name, which are part of why he's still prime minister. I mean, he has been fortunate with the candidates the Labour Party put up against him. Not just Corbyn, but Brown and Miliband. That is a terrible rogue 
Lords Gallery of candidates for the <laughs> Labour Party to present. None of them were viable Prime Ministers. And that is lucky. The the Downing Street source who suggests he they somehow managed to get the Labour Party to go bonkers is pushing it a bit. I know what they mean. <laughs> Politician, who'd have thought it? I yeah. know what they mean, that they by occupying a, a central position, they that you therefore tempt the, the other parties. But that doesn't mean to say the Labour Party was therefore compelled to go insane. Uh, it did so of its own volition. But it's true, Cameron has got away with certain things and he's also achieved some stuff. I think the big decision he made, which was which is correct, is essentially not to lurch the Tory party to the right. Lots of left of centre commentators think the Tory party is incredibly right wing, but the voters don't believe that and I think they're right. It isn't an incredibly right wing uh, government really. It's inherited a bad uh, public uh, deficit, but it's not a deeply right-wing government, and that's been his, his secret. He's been an essentially centrist politician in an essentially centrist country, and so that is a good political choice, and it is to his credit. Interestingly, just before the election, when I was following him for the profile I wrote for the Times, there was a lot of pressure on him then to start pandering to the UKIP agenda, and he was absolutely clear about that. He said, we cannot out UKIP, UKIP, and we're not going to try. And at the time, a lot of people thought that was a foolish position, that he was facing such a threat that he should have tilted to the right. And he's always been very clear about where his politics are, and he's, he's not that easily pushed um, rightwards, because those aren't his instincts. I actually buy the Lucky Dave thesis. I think he's, in, he's lucky, but he's also Nice Dave. So Lucky Dave, you can bracket with Essay Crisis Dave. And that, as far as I can tell, that is the way he governs. He focuses on what is stuck right in front of his nose with the cornflakes. He should have been a journalist. Yes. That's how we all are too. But the nice Dave thing puts him authentically more or less in the middle. I mean, apparently he really do do, he nice really does want to make people's lives a bit better. I think that apparently that's what he wants to do. Oh. No, no, this is what I've heard. Oh, a good God. source <laughs> who sometimes lovely. sits next to me <laughs> says that he wants to use the next couple of years to make people's life a bit better. And even though he can be can really no wait wait I know I know but even though he can be really irritating and the and the most irritating is this thing the person about, who sits next to you or just the camera uh, and, and 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 even though the most irritating thing about him is the way in which he seems he he gives the impression of being happy just to have got the job and that's enough. Oh, I don't think happy. He feels that was the job he should have got. He feels that he's in the rightful place. One, one of the important things about Cameron, I've always thought, is that he doesn't have really fixed beliefs. Mm. And I say that. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. As a compliment, he's not like a lot of Labour people are, really doctrinal about things. He's quite flexible. And I once compared him to a plumber. A plumber doesn't turn up with your bathroom with a theory of the bathroom. They just think, well, where's the tap? I'll fix it. And all of Cameron's early slogans were broken society, broken politics, broken economy. He just likes mending stuff. A bit like Giles says, he comes and and says, "What's, what's wrong? Okay, we need to fix that, then we'll fix that. And that's perfectly reasonable way of governing, and he's quite good at it. Everyone else, after a few years in office, looked like they've just been totally eaten and consumed by by office, don't they? He looks like he's just been sort of resting for five years, really. Actually, spending time at a health farm. Um, No, when I was with him, I was really struck by that. He is relaxed about about the business of being Prime Minister. Not in the sense he doesn't work hard. I was struck by how incredibly hard he works and crams for interviews and meetings and speeches and everything else. But he thinks basically, as Giles says, I'm trying to make everyone's lives a bit better and I think I should be enjoying my own, which is very attractive quality. But can I just ask Giles your point about... Um, you think he comes across as nice because he's centrist. Do you think people who are more extreme can't appear nice? Yes. That's fascinating. Why? Because they because they seem fanatical, or or odd. Yes, they're they're they're, they're like the people who sabotage any conversation you get into them by being with them by being absolutist and 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 telling you that uh, they're right and you're wrong. Uh, so yeah, I I, th- I think niceness is a centrist thing and. Centrism is nice. Extreme people always give the impression, too, that they're excessively concerned with the thing that they're extreme about. So yes. even if you slightly agree with them, you think the very the ardour with which you're offering this makes me think you're a madman. So you get this in the European debate where you might be Eurosceptic yourself, but if somebody thinks Euroscepticism is the most important thing that's ever happened in the history of the world, you think, oh, hang on a minute, <laughs> I don't quite think that. Yeah, why don't you have a cup of tea or a glass yes. of wine and just sit down and, and put your Cameron feet up? Cameron never gives you that feeling. He, he, in, in the best possible way, he slightly doesn't seem as though he's that interested in politics. And that, that's one of the interesting things. When he announced last year before the election that he wasn't going to fight again in 2020, the Westminster bubble concluded this was a terrible mistake and people would think uh, he was throwing it all away and why was he telling people that now? And actually, I think the public thought, well, this is a guy who's not clinging on by his fingertips. He's got to have to be prized out of number 10. He was a guy doing a job, said he was going to do it properly, but there wasn't that fanatical, whether it's the Gordon Brown or the Tony Blair well, issue of clinging on that, that people I was, didn't like. I was with Blair when he announced his resignation impending. And that was a forced thing because there was Gordon Brown. That's the other very important mm. thing in, in the history of Cameron as Prime Minister. He's had throughout a very supportive Chancellor. He's had very good relations with Osborne. Now, that's not luck. I mean, that's something that they've worked out and they have a very close bond. And that's a very important part of why he's been relatively successful. And there were were things now which now viewed as being lucky or successful. I'm not sure he thought he was very lucky in May 2010 when 
he'd failed to beat Gordon Brown and had to, but he took no, took, took a very bad situation and now it turned into what turned out to be a well, masterstroke. I, th- I think that going failure to win a victory, which I think he should have won, means that although I, I wouldn't describe him as simply a fortunate prime minister, I don't think he's a wonderful electoral politician. Mm. I think a really magnetic politician would have won handsomely in 2010 against Brown and I think would have won a lot better against Miliband in 2015. I think he's only a moderately good electoral politician because he doesn't reach very far. He doesn't bring many people into the Conservative fold who aren't natural Conservatives. I disagree with you about that because I think that um, I'm very struck by what Giles said. Shortly before the election, I was asking somebody who had been a Labour voter all their lives what they thought about David Cameron. Their voice completely softened and they said, I think he's such a lovely man. And whenever I hear about the bad things the Conservatives are doing, I think he can't know about them. No, but look at the electoral... And, the, uh, and that no, is, I think, why he's so appealing. Look at the electoral map, Jenny. But look what he did in, tw- in 2015. He won a, a, a number of seats which was absolutely unprecedented. Nobody has ever moved from um, being in power and increasing their majority in the way that Cameron the Labour did. Party Can presented I? a Muppet. Can I just say who won the election in 2015? It wasn't Cameron and it wasn't Miliband. It was that Yorkshire woman who took Miliband apart in the last debate. That's what decided the election. Over his economic policy yeah, yeah, spending. Yeah. But yes, she didn't. when he so said, I didn't do anything so wrong, therefore you didn't you're that saying turn the nation. If that hadn't been on the telly, then Ed Miliband would be Prime Minister. But you don't think that, do you? No, it's, I'm apportioning credit where it is due. Not due. <laughs> My point. It is due. <laughs> it's not I due. Think given and I think the BBC was on their metal that night to make sure that there were some voices like that in the audience. <laughs> I think Because they know what fans the Tories are, the BBC, that they wanted to back them out. They did, <laughs> the people like running that particular debate didn't want to get it in the neck for, for packing the audience with labour rights. I just think, given how tough the economic situation has been, given how unpopular austerity is, given how many difficult decisions the Tories have made, it was a pretty remarkable performance on Cameron's part in 2015. And I must say, I don't think Johnson, notwithstanding that the Tories have got anybody who can hold a candle to Cameron insofar as appealing widely in the country goes. And it's going to be a terrible thing for them if he does indeed stand down, I think. So, Phil, this sort of brings us on to your your thesis of the day, if you like, that being, or in fact it's Michael Caine's thesis, that once you're left of Blair or right of Cameron, he doesn't trust them. Yes. And that, you think that's basically where the public are? I think that's an f- observable fact about the British nation, yes. Uh, I don't necessarily say that's right, or I don't commend it philosophically, although it happens to be quite close to where I am. There's a happy coincidence between what I view and, and, and what is, in fact, correct in Britain. Um, <laughs> I told you. Which uh, is sheer, right. sheer good fortune on my part. Um, I, I do. No, you mean on the nation's part? <laughs> well, well, them too. Um, but I, I do think there is a real genuine point there, is that... If you have views which are quite centrist, kind of Blairite in the Labour Party or Cameron, um, Cameroon in the Conservative Party, I think I do think you actually are quite close to the bulk of the electorate. I really do think that. And, and you're I think, all nice too. Yes, and you're therefore, in, on Charles's terms, <laughs> nice. Whereas if you're a vi- more vintage social democrat, I don't mean a, a Corbynite, I mean Ed Milibandite, so an entirely respectable, defensible set of views, or if you're a bit further over to in, in the centre of the Conservative Party, I think you are further away from the, sort of the place where you harvest the most votes. I just think that is a fact. And I think so many people in politics pretend it's not true. And they pretend that their views are, in fact, those of a winning position. I'm not saying this is immutable or that 20 years from now you can't change it or you shouldn't argue to try and change it. But I do think if you arrive at a general election with a view which is somewhat to the left of the British people and then affects surprise that you got 30%, you're in the wrong game. 
And the Labour Party was full of people who did that. And Miliband said quite publicly he thought that the centre ground of British politics had moved to the left post-crash. He did. And, he, and it just hadn't. He did. And he makes a terrible... One of the mistakes that people make, which links us right back to why I said earlier I don't think America holds lessons for Britain, which I don't, is that I don't believe there are, is anything that links the politics of Greece, Spain, Germany, America, Britain. I think they're all exceptional. And he did think that there was this huge event, a bit like the French Revolution happening, which was a new period of history, after which there would be an appetite for a left-of-centre government. And the truth is, there was no grand move in any direction after the crash, because nobody thinks like that. Because nobody who's out there hardly watching thinks, ah, that inaugurates a brand new era of history, in which case I'm going to move to the left because government solutions are the things required in this new age of austerity. Nobody, apart from Ed Miliband and the people he meets on Hampstead Heath, think like that. But what, what about, think like Michael what about the second problem that Labour had? It wasn't just the ideas or the position. It was the fact that he wasn't personally very good at selling. You know, maybe a different, more charismatic, excitable character could have generated a bit more noise around that sort of left-wing argument. It's possible. It's a very interesting question because I wrote recently that there are only three things you need to know about politics. One is you've got to have a viable leader. Two is that you've got to be ahead on the economy. And the third is you've got to remember there are only two things. And if you had a leader who was really good but in the wrong position, I still don't think it would work yeah. because I think the leadership ratings are in fact a compendium of all the things people mm. want to see in a politician. So if you're wildly left-wing, you're not going to have good leadership ratings, even if you're charismatic and good-looking. Well, you could be Yanis Varoufakis. And yeah, that, but it would be he, a lot more appealing. But he's actually, he's in Greece. There's something very important about Greece, which is a different country from Britain. Oh, no, no. I, do, I, I, just, I just meant that you can be charismatic and, and have policies that are, that are madly left-wing. But I also think the more important point, which Ed Miliband didn't understand, which is absolutely critical, is that at a time of economic uncertainty, people are, in fact, less likely to move towards left-wing solutions because what they fear is the loss of what they've already got. They become mm. very loss averse. People are more likely in British political history to vote for left-wing solutions and more generosity to the poor at a time when they feel secure in themselves. But Ed Miliband's message about inequality said to a lot of people, what I already have is going to be taken away from mm. me to be given to people who work less hard and are less deserving than I am. Then Ed didn't understand that fundamental psychological fact. And Giles, how much of it do you think, when we touched on this earlier about how David Cameron probably doesn't believe in a huge amount, the same argument used to be made about Tony Blair, that actually most normal people don't go around defining themselves as being left or right. That's largely where they are. They want problems to be sorted out. Mm. And so when, a, when the, the candidate most like them, who doesn't appear to believe in a huge amount, comes along, that's the, that's the one they probably most readily identify with. Yeah, well, that seems to be how elections are generally swayed in functioning democracies. But I do think there's something everyone's just deliberately ignoring. Let's bring it back to today briefly. There's something happening. Tim Montgomery of this parish uh, has uh, written about it recently, and which does, contrary to what Phil says, link America, Greece and here. Bernie Sanders, narrowly beaten uh, this morning in Iowa, is a socialist, let's remember, a socialist making the running against Hillary in um, right-of-centre America. Corbyn not going anywhere. There is a, a, a populist upsurge in many countries, and I do believe, um, and this is uh, for the same reasons um, that as Jenny was talking about, that the, um, the reckoning comes after the hunger. 
and that there is still a desire for a reckoning post-crash. People have absorbed, if not read, Thomas Piketty. They've watched The Big Short, <laughs> which is a heck of a movie, and they've, they're, they're thinking, you know what, that was a huge injustice, and... Um, and I'm I'm going to vote accordingly. So don't don't rule out the people who who do actually think. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. The question is, what segment of the population does that appeal to? There's absolutely no question that capitalism is delivering um, appalling results yeah. for sections of the population. A small insecure, thoughtful segment. Well, it, I'm, I'm not indeed. They may be small, thoughtful, and completely um, benighted, and their lives are being wrecked by rules which they didn't make and which which don't work out for them. They can't buy houses, and their jobs are insecure, and they don't know how they're going to look after their parents, and they haven't got pensions. And those people, of course, are going to look around and say, and they're right, capitalism does not work for us, and why should we want to go along with the system? But the point is that they're an electoral minority. I've just drawn a, a Venn diagram and put in the middle of it all those people who've both read Thomas Piketty and watched The Big Short. And, there's, and there's all three of them in this room. And, uh, <laughs> and Thomas Piketty. <laughs> in it. uh, it's anti-politics, isn't it? The, 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 a lot of that is a, is a, a revolt against the political elites, and that is happening everywhere. Well, I just a, don't think they're, they're Well, it's a very proper understanding that some people are really suffering in order that other people can become rich. That, that, is, that, that is the fact of an insecure, globalised, competitive those, world. But if those people will listen to Michael Caine, then they can make their vote more effective. But on that note, let's, let's leave Michael Caine to decide the next general election. You can find out more about what we've been talking about at thetimes.co.uk. You can get the podcast delivered every week by subscribing through iTunes and sign up to get my daily political briefing red box straight to your inbox at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. For now, from Giles, Jenny, Phil and me, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.